Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The word of God speaks to us. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. This is God's word to us. All right. Well, good morning, guys. You doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. It's good to be back here. It's been a minute since I was last with you guys and lots of new faces in the room that I haven't seen before. So it's fun to see uh, this congregation growing both in the nine o'clock service and in this one. And um, yeah, I'm excited to, to open this passage, Genesis 3, with you guys. If you've got a Bible, as Sean mentioned, open there. If you don't have a Bible, the words will be on the screen as we move throughout our service. So, so no stress on that level. And um, this passage in front of us today, I'll say this before I jump into prayer and get to it. Uh, this is a, a passage that's all at one time, a mountaintop and a valley. It's a mountaintop passage in Scripture because as you understand the whole message of the Bible, you've got to understand this passage, Genesis chapter 3. Uh, we understand where Jesus is relevant because of what happens against the backdrop here. And so it's a mountaintop passage in terms of the message of the Bible. It's a deep valley because it might just be the saddest passage in all of the Bible. And so it's a mountaintop and a valley all at once. So there's a lot of work for us here today. And so if you would please pray with me. I'll pray for you and we'll see, uh, see how God would shape us today. Our God, we come to you in the mercy of Jesus. And we want to say thank you collectively, even from the assurance this morning after our confession Thank you for the mercy of Jesus, God. We're not smart enough to, to tackle the task in front of us. We're not savvy enough. We're not good enough. We're not anything enough to understand your word on our own and its impact on our lives. And so we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come now. And would you please do for us what Jesus said you would do for us, and that is guide us into all truth. I'm asking that you would not only open our minds, Holy Spirit, but would you also widen our hearts? Would you, would, you bring, would you bring together the place of thinking and feeling today? Integration, I'm asking. And we want to join with the church all over the globe today that has risen and worshipped on this Lord's Day. The oldest confession of the church, Jesus is Lord. We confess that today. And we offer that prayer and that confession in Jesus' name. And together we said... Amen. Well, the Lord God called, in our passage it makes very clear, the Lord God himself called, and he asks this question. 
Where are you? Where are you? This morning, even from the start of the sermon, I don't want you simply to hear that question as something to be processed. I'm inviting you to both process and feel. That's a question we need to sort of get down to the depths of. Where are you? God himself asks that question in this room this morning as much as he asked it in the moment of crisis in Genesis chapter 3. And when God asks the question, you got to understand, as he sort of looks at you and points at you and with his Holy Spirit and his living word comes to us again with that question today, he's not asking a question of location. Could you drop a pin for me? Help me to find you. He's not asking the question in terms of like, you know, a lack of information. He's not asking because he's hard up to find the answer. If you don't tell me, I'm not going to know where you are. Where, where are you? He's asking the question at a level of the soul. Where are you? He's asking at the level of relationship. And it's, it's an interesting question because God asks you the question this morning in an effort to draw you out. Isn't it interesting that the question God asks the first question we have in Scripture, this is God's question. We only have a question from God before this moment. He's initiating with us. Isn't it interesting it's a question you can't answer with a yes or no? You can't give him a short answer. He's intending to draw you forward in relationship or to understand something that's been lost of relationship in an answer that's going to require you to think. And not just think, but also feel and to answer, where, where are you? There may not be another statement in the Bible that's as full of love and of sadness and judgment all at the same time. It's a loving question, isn't it? It's a question of pursuit. Where are you? It's a question of sadness because of a relationship that's been fractured. Where are you? It's also a question of judgment because the judge knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly what you've done, and he knows exactly why you're there, and me too. In the context of this question, the question assumes that wherever you are, you're not there with me, and I'm not there with you. And I want you to make no mistake, God is the one who asks this question. This is God's question. Where are you? And yet I want you to feel this morning that it's the same question that now reveals the essence of sin. It reveals at the, at the essence level how messed up that I am, how messed up you are, how messed up we are in our fallen condition. Why? Because since Genesis chapter 3, all of humanity has taken God's question and we've flipped it back on him as though he's the one on trial. Isn't it true that since Genesis 3, this has become the most asked question of God throughout human history outside of the garden as though God's problem is a problem of showing up. And so we ask God now, where are you? Where are you? And we take God's question and we flip it back on him as though we're the judge, as though we're the most offended party. And we ask this question of God as though he's indebted to us and we're entitled to his presence. And I'm not saying that the asking of this question is a wrong thing to do. There's a, a really good example through Scripture of a faith-filled way to ask this question of God. 
But what I'm arguing is that for most of us, we most often ask this question of God as though we know best what he ought to be up to and where he ought to be. And we ask this question of him as though we're holding him accountable for not being on the job. God, where are you? Where are you? And the passage before us today, again, is not something I want us so much to understand, but to feel we've got to. Because the topic is what theologians have called the fall of man. It's the moment that sin entered the world. It's the day that you broke. The day that I broke. The day the whole world broke. The first bad day that has led to, that sort of got at the undercurrent, the the first bad day leading to every other bad day since. And the writer's burden of this passage is to help his original readers wandering through the wilderness, just escaping slavery from Egypt, to help them and us understand why is the world the way that it is? Why am I the way that I am? And I realize that we're in a present moment to talk about sin from the jump in an intro and have a passage that has that as its theme. We're in a moment that culturally we don't define sin and maybe the common ways we have historically defined it where we're all sort of on the same page when I use that term. Like we're in a cultural moment where some don't even think that sin is a thing anymore. It's of no real consequence. That's just an old sort of religious construct that's made us to feel bad or to keep us from doing bad things or to sort of promote us and to scare us into being good people. But the thought is maybe we've developed past that, that we can pretty well decide right from wrong on our own and we don't need the scare tactic of something like sin to to hold us in check. But if that's your definition of sin, then you've got to do something with school shootings. That if it's not really a thing at all, what do you call that? What do you call, what do you call geopolitical wars that result in the deaths of all kinds of innocent people? What do you call rape? What do you call domestic violence, racism, terrorism, human trafficking? You say, well, I just call those things evil. I just call those things wicked. Me too. But I would ask a follow-up question, what's driving that wickedness? Where, where did that evil come? Where, where's the seedbed of that? What's driving that that caused those other horrific things to bubble up and to come out? What, what's that? The biblical word for that thing that's down there is sin. And the problem isn't just sort of out there, you know, in the world talking about other people or something abstracted from us. The problem is in here. The problem is in me. It's in you. The seedbed of all those worst things in the world is in your heart and mine. If any one of us just had our thoughts, picture this for a moment with me, if we had our thoughts or our desires or our impulses sort of posted up on a live stream, even for just a half day, so that everyone walking around us could see what's happening inside of us, I don't think we need a whole day. I think you just do it for a half day. Every one of us are outed. We're outed. It's not true to say that you and I are generally good people who occasionally do bad things. That's not a true statement. We do bad things because rebellion against God has affected us to the core. I'm not saying that we're as bad as we possibly could be, but I am saying that rebellion against God has affected every part of us. We have rejected God. We have refused God. We have disregarded God. We've suppressed the truth of God. We've put ourselves in the place of God over our life. We're selfish, we're prideful, we're unloving, 
We're full of envy. We're unwilling to forgive those who harm us. We're vengeful. We desire the very things that God said would destroy us and other people. We're sexually immoral. We've taken the good gifts of God and we've turned them into gods themselves to worship as though they're the things that satisfy us. And yet, with that list, outing you and outing me, we're the ones who now have the audacity to take God's question and flip it back on him. And we ask, where are you? As though he's the one who moved. And so I realized, like from the start of a sermon, I've just dropped a really heavy weight into the room. Like a big old fat thousand pound weight. A really unpopular weight. You're talking about that and that's not good for my self-esteem, you know. But it's a weight that we've got to feel. It's, we, it's a weight that we have to sort of, you know, We've got to feel the gasp and the breaking of our text as much as we understand it. Here's why. Because until the bad news is bad, the good news won't truly be good. Until the bad news is bad and seen as bad and we detaste it, then the good news won't. One old preacher said it this way. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. Until sin be bitter, Christ will not be sweet. So we're going to move through our passage today around four turns. The dialogue, the decision, the dread, and the sword. The dialogue, decision, dread, and sword. So here's what's happening in the first two chapters. The writer has been stacking in Genesis 1 and 2. He's been stacking evidence for the goodness of God. Mounting evidence for the goodness of God. Showing you at at every turn his benevolence, his, his generosity, how good he is. Chapter 2 ends with man and woman together, naked and unashamed. They're placed in a garden by God, with God, whose very name means luxury and delight, Eden. God is enjoying his creation. His creation is enjoying him. And Adam says to Eve, or sorry, sorry, and God says to Adam and to Eve, everything that I have is yours. Everything. Everything that I have is yours. This language of inheritance except one tree, everything except one. And where chapter 3 opens, our text today, everything now is narrowing in on what's happening with that tree. Pick up with me in verse 1. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? I want to warn you not to let your familiarity with this passage rob you from engagement today because what we're about to read is not just an ancient story out there. What we're reading is a story that actually will help us interpret our very own story because what happens to Adam and what happens to Eve with this serpent happens to you and me all the time. All the time. And we don't know initially by this passage, but the rest of the Bible makes clear that Satan is the one speaking through the serpent. And the first thing we learn about the serpent is of his craftiness. We're told it's the more, most crafty animal God had placed in the garden. And that's a clue there not to so, so much observe what this serpent is doing or what this serpent is saying, but why he's saying it, his intentions. Notice the first thing the serpent says, did God actually say? He mocks God's word. He's in God's garden with God's image bearers, mocking God's word. Did God actually say, you can't be serious? Did he really say that to you? What kind of egocentric person would keep something so wonderful from you? 
He finishes his thought. Did God actually say that you shouldn't eat from any tree of the garden? Like no trees. God said that. Did God say that? And so he mocks God's word, and then he twists God's word because God didn't say anything about eating from any tree in the garden. In fact, 2.16 says, he says, every tree is yours except one. So it's not that you can't have from any tree. You can have from every tree. But what is Satan doing? He's drawing in this web of doubt. And this is really important for you to catch. The logic of Satan here is to say, if God would withhold anything from you, then isn't that the same thing as him withholding everything from you? If God would withhold anything, then isn't that, that's his math. Isn't that the same thing as him withholding everything? Satan is trying to get Adam and Eve to question the very goodness of God that's been carried in spades through two chapters. The very goodness that's made this whole thing into being is now what's on trial. Did God actually say? And isn't, isn't Satan's math often how we feel about God? We're asking of, of things, maybe one thing in particular, and we're getting a no from him. Or we feel as though our prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. And so we're made to believe, if God won't give me this one thing, all of a sudden we take our eyes off of everything else he's given to us and been so kind to grant us, but we just do the math and say, God, you never give me anything. You're never good to me at all. And so what ends up happening then is this is deconstruction 101. And I just want to point this out because what's been made so popular in our cultural moment, sort of you hear people of ex-evangelicals or people who are deconstructing from their faith. This is deconstructing this is Deconstruction 101. And I just pointed out to say, hey, let's not be dumb to satanic tactics that are playing inside of us and other people. Because here's what Satan is doing. If I can get you to eject on the goodness of God, if I can get you to doubt, if I can get you to misplace, if I can get you to just sort of disregard the goodness of God, then I can get you to do anything. If God isn't good, then everything else is on the table and you call your own shots. Look at Eve's reply. And the woman said to the serpent, we, we actually can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. And then she says, neither shall you touch it lest you die. That's really important what Eve says because Satan is twisting God's word and mocking God's word, but now Eve in her reply reveals that she doesn't actually know God's word. God didn't say anything about touching the tree. He only spoke about eating from the tree. And so what Eve is doing, really popular in Bible Belt America, she's highlighting what she believes to be the strictness of God neglected from the goodness of God. So many people believe that God is just known for what he's against and what you can't do. And that's what she's highlighting. He didn't even say you could touch it. She's highlighting his strictness that he didn't even put on the table apart from his goodness. She's now thinking of what he said no to apart from his intentions. And how many times is this true for us where what draws you into doubt, what draws me into drift, is what we start to imagine God to be, how we feel about God, regardless of the fact that we don't even know what the Bible says. So many people have negative preconceived ideas about God, not because of something in Scripture, but because of how they feel or what they imagine. I would reject and I would doubt the God of my imaginations too. He's not the God of the Bible. 
And so we'll rip what the Bible says out of context, neglecting its intentions. We will sort of uh, rip it out of context and neglect the heart of God's goodness in what he's saying. And we're so quick to put God on trial. And you see this time and again in our cultural moment with issues of gender and sexuality. Cherry-pick verses, put God on trial, never mind his intentions, never mind the broader shadow of goodness. And so look what happens in verse 4. The serpent responds, But the serpent said to the woman, you're not really going to die. You're not really going to die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So now Eve is squarely in the web. She's trying to reason with crazy. We don't often think of this, but what's shocking about this passage is what we don't read. Eve and Adam and Eve had dominion over every creature that God had made. They had dominion. And so you have this serpent now speaking to Eve as though he has authority over her and speaking about her God as though he has authority over him. What we should read is, shut up, serpent, do your job. And yet she's the one listening on the other side. She's reasoning with crazy. He mocks God's word, twists God's word. Now he rejects God's word. You're not really going to die. That's crazy. That seems too far-fetched. And so the first doctrine in Scripture to be rejected is God's right to judge. The serpent's appeal is this. God's judgments can't be trusted. You're not really going to die. He can't be trusted because he's not good. He's not good because look at what he's holding out on you. You merely merely bear the image of God, but this tree could make you like God. Who is God to tell you what you can or can't be? You should be able to decide for yourself. You should be able to call balls and strikes for yourself. It's this intoxicating lie of autonomy. Who should be able to point to me what I can or can't do? I should be able to decide that for myself. It's a lie we love to believe even to this very day. And so in this whole dialogue, what's happening is Satan is making an all-out assault on the goodness of God. Making an all-out assault. And isn't that the question of our world? If God is good, then why does he allow If God is good, then why didn't he stop the fill in the blank? And so at the core of everything that's tempting to you and that causes doubt in your heart, everything that's at the core of that is the lie. Can God really be trusted? Is God really good? Will God really provide? Is God somehow holding out on me? And it doesn't matter how much you know the right answer to those questions. You feel a negative response in your chest, which causes you to doubt and drift. Me too. And here's what I want you to feel. This is the moment when that lie went into Eve's heart, it went into Adam's heart, and it's now gone into your heart and mine. Same lie that's gone into every heart since. If you obey, you won't be happy. How could a good God withhold from you? If he withholds anything from you, then isn't that the same thing as him withholding everything from you? At the core of everything that's wrong in the world, is Satan's attack on the goodness of God. Adam believed it. Eve believed it. We've believed it. The dialogue, the second piece, the decision. Here's what's fascinating. The first five verses clip along pretty fast in this whole dialogue. 
But verse 6 might be the saddest verse in all of the Bible, and it's like everything that was moving fast slows down, and we get sort of insight into Eve's deliberation. Notice verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that it was a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Verse 6. The goodness of God is on the table. The person of God is sitting at the table with them in the garden. I don't want it. I want what I want. I want what I want. I want when I want it, and I want it just the way that I want it. And I'll get rid of God if that's what it takes. The saddest verse in Scripture. In verse 6, is telling about Adam and Eve. But listen, guys, it's holding up a mirror in this room. We read our story in verse 6. If you don't see yourself in verse 6, then you're missing it. This is exactly what we do. This is exactly how it goes down for us. Just replace the tree with the thing that's tempting for you. When Eve stopped seeing God to be good, she saw the tree to be good. She saw the tree as being able to offer her something that God couldn't or God wouldn't. If God's not going to get my back, I'll get my own and I'll do it my way. This is how sin always works. Sin never presents itself for the thing that it truly is. It never tells you about its consequences. All sin tells you about is right now pleasure ready made for you. It never tells you about back in shame. It never does. It always promises and it never delivers. One, uh, Paul Tripp says it like this. He says, sin lives in a costume. That's why it's so hard to recognize the fact that sin looks so good, or even I would add there, as not so bad, is one of the things that makes it so bad. In order for sin to do its evil work, it must present itself as something that is anything but evil. Life in a fallen world, he says, is like attending the ultimate masquerade party. Evil simply doesn't present itself as evil, which is part of its draw. You'll never understand sin's sleight of hand until you acknowledge that the DNA of sin is deception. And now what this means personally is that as sinners, we are all very committed and gifted self-swindlers. We're all too skilled at looking at our own wrong and calling it good. And so Eve took of the fruit, and I want to point this out, I think Andrew did last week, but where was Adam? The Bible makes really clear he was with her. So picture this scene for a second. You've got this serpent whom you have dominion over spitting lies into the heart of your bride and spitting lies about your maker who has put all of this into place and placed you with him in the midst of the garden and he's just sort of standing there. And then she takes and then he says, me too. One scholar put it this way, pretty simple. Eve listened to the serpent Adam listened to Eve, but no one listened to God. And so here's what's interesting, right? We look at this, a story we're familiar with, and sometimes I think on this side where like sin is the world we live in, we would just sort of go, hey, what, 
it all broke because of this little, I mean, like, they just ate something. What's, like, what's so bad about, we can almost sort of cause ourselves to question this whole story based on our familiarity. That doesn't seem so evil. What's the big deal? Like, it'd be one thing if somehow, like, a flip switched and they went on a killing rampage through the whole garden and destroyed all the animals and especially the cats or something, you know. We'd go, hey, I get it, God. Get them out of the garden. They can't be trusted. PETA has got to be on this, you know. But they just ate something. What's so wrong with it? It's not like they killed the cats. There's an old prayer that talks about it this way. The heinousness of sin, the thing that makes sin so heinous, is not so much the act itself, the quote says, but the greatness of the person sinned against. You do something to me, it hurts enough, but you move on. You do something to a police officer, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. You do something to a state official, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. You do something to the President of the United States, you've got an even bigger problem on your hands. You punch a lion in the face, you've got a bigger problem on your hands. It's not so much the act itself, it's the person being sinned against, the dialogue, the decision, the dread. Pick up with me in verse 7. The eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Sometimes we ask, what's so wrong with that? Adam and Eve knew. <laughs> they, they, knew like, they knew we've done something here. And so the lamest verse in all the Bible, they sewed fig leaves together, and they made loincloths. They had removed themselves from their covering. Listen to this point. The scripture says they were naked and unashamed, but they weren't totally unclothed. God was their clothing. They were clothed in his glory. They were clothed in his presence. They were rightly imaging back to the world as image bearers of God. He was their covering. They removed themselves. They stepped outside of his presence, and the best they could do was fig leaves. What do you cover yourself with? What's the thing that you cover yourself with to tell yourself that you're okay even when you're afraid that you're not or to project to others that you're okay so that they don't get too close and find out things that you don't want them to know? What do you cover yourself with? We still do this. Money, success, achievements, busyness. I'm super busy. I'm super important. I'm okay. I promise. Appearances, alcohol, prescription drugs. I want you to read the rest of this passage with me, the breakage. It says, and then they heard the sound of the Lord God. This is wild. It was just the, this is the, this is the moment like where the kids are doing something wrong in the house and they just hear the car pull up. It was just the sound. Just the sound. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and it says, the man and his wife hid themselves, this crazy sentence, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God. How do you do that? The word presence there is actually translated from Hebrew, face. They hid themselves best they could from the face of God. I can't look at him. I can't look at him. Here's our question, verse 9. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you. I heard the garage door coming up in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you you were naked? Adam, you've always been that way. Who told you that? 
Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, well, the woman that you gave to be with me, well, then she gave it to me, you know. So I just did what she did, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you've done? And she said, well, the serpent, the serpent that you put here that was super crafty, well, he deceived me, but I ate. I just want you to see the fruit of sin for a second before we go to our final turn. The serpent promised freedom and autonomy. The serpent said, you're not really going to die. And here's what's crazy about the passage. They got what they wanted. But they didn't live. They didn't die that day like they thought they might have died. But we died along with them, and they really did die. Their constant communion with God died that day. They would eventually go to their own graves, but before that they would witness one of their sons killing another of their sons over jealousy that was in his heart because the lie about the goodness of God went into their kids' hearts too, and they'd have to bury one of their own sons. Their innocence died. Guilt and fear gripped their hearts. They denied. They blame-shifted. They were introduced to shame. That doesn't describe life. They died. And what's crazy on this side of all that, I just described for us Tuesday. We've died too. And this is why I just want to say <laughs> the modern therapeutic movement is such a sham when it tells you that shame isn't real, that sin isn't real, and that if you just look inside of yourself, you're enough. Everything inside of you is freaking out because you know that's not true. You know who you are. I know who I am and what I've done. And I know that I've tried everything inside of me, and I still am the way that I am. And that's why there's a different story offered. Let's get to the fourth turn, the sword. Verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden. You feel the wreckage of this? They had luxury and delight. They had the presence of God, but now they're sent out of it to work the ground from which he was taken. 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way back to the tree of life. Remember I said in the beginning, until sin is bitter, Christ will not be sweet. In the last minutes I have with you, let's taste the sweetness of Jesus together. The greatest loss on that day wasn't the garden. The greatest loss was the presence of the living God. Such a terrifying verse, verse 24. This sword that's guarding the way back into the presence of God, turning every which way a sign of judgment. That at the very least, the sword is telling us if we're ever going back into the presence of God, it's not going to be by anything we can do of our own. We can't get back on our own doing. The sword's keeping us out. Judgment's keeping us out. The question has been about the goodness of God, and the answer to that question is in the sending of his very own son. The sword of judgment for sin fell on Jesus at the cross. At the cross of our Lord, he undid everything that went wrong in Genesis 3. He answered the question that Satan has put into our hearts. Is God good? Does he mean good for you? Can you trust him? He answered that with nails in his hands and a very spear, a sword in his own side where he becomes sin. He takes the curse on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Is God good? Can he be trusted? You bet he's good. Hear the cries of his own son. He's more good than you could have ever dreamed. 
At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. In the beautiful garden of Eden, God told Adam, obey me about the tree and you will live. But he disobeyed. In the dark garden of Gethsemane, God tells Jesus, obey me about the tree, the cross, but you will be crushed. And Jesus says, your will be done. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. Sin had banished us from the presence of God. But on the cross, the sword fell on Jesus without in the mystery of the Trinity, without severing the unity of the Trinity. Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the veil of the temple was torn at the sound of his voice, and now he becomes the way back into the presence of God. He was banished by his Father so that we might be reunited. At the cross, Jesus undid everything that went wrong. He dealt with the lie. He dealt with the tree. He dealt with the sword. He dealt with our banishment, and he now becomes our covering. When sin is as bitter as it is, then Christ is as he is, oh, so sweet. You don't have to hide anymore. Fig leaves don't do you any good, and they never have. You've been outed at the cross of God's own son, and you've also been covered in the cross of God's own son. Three questions and a prayer. Where in your life do you still tend to doubt the goodness of God? Where's the lie still in your heart? It's in mine. The second question is, where in your life do you feel stuck and in hiding? Maybe the better way to ask the second question is this. Hey, where in your life are you afraid of someone finding out? Where in your life, if the person sitting next to you really knew, you fear they might not still sit next to you? Where's that place? The idea here is that God is inviting you to walk out of darkness, to save you, not to shame you. You don't have to hide. You've already been outed. He's not inviting you out just to leave you standing there. He's inviting you out to save you there. The third question is this. Can you hear God's question today? And how would you answer him? Where are you? Can you hear his question today? And how would you answer him? Where are you? Let's pray together. (coughs) Holy Spirit, would you please apply to us the sweetness of Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you also apply to us the bitterness of sin? Holy Spirit, would you please show us every and any place in our life where we're hiding in the shadows, content to believe in God, but to shut him out of parts of our life? Would you expose the lie, Holy Spirit, but would you also expose the truth? Jesus, thank you that if we ever doubted the goodness of God, we don't have to look any further than your own cross. That not only do we find 
God's mercy there, we also find the fact that God does carry out justice. But by looking to you, he carries it out on you and not on us. And so we confess the same thing we did at the start of our time together. Jesus is Lord. Amen. As we come to the table today, there's something here really beautiful. That in the beginning, such a simple act of disobedience caused unimagined consequences. Take and eat. But in Christ, that same simple act has now been reversed, where this simple act now brings with it unimagined blessings. Take and eat. The difference is, Jesus says, my body goes between. This is my body. It's been broken for you. This is for your sins. Everything that's kept you out of the presence of God, you're now being invited back in through this body that was broken takes the cup and he raises it and he says, this is my blood that was poured out for you and this is about a new covenant, a new promise. I'll be your God and you'll be my people and I'm not just going to make you eat, I'm going to say drink and let it wash all the way down. He says, this is about the forgiveness of your sins. It's so good. Sin is bitter, but Christ is sweet. Believers in Jesus come to these tables and receive fresh grace from your Lord Jesus fresh grace for the journey. You were once banished, but now you're brought close. You were once uncovered, and he's now covered you with his own blood. If you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I'd say we'd love for you to come to Jesus instead of coming to the tables. This meal is all about confessing the Jesus of Scripture to be your Lord. If that's not yet true, as Christians move around the room, I'd invite you just to simply ask God, reveal yourself to me. He's big enough to handle that, big enough to handle your doubts. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to become a Christian as we're dismissed today. So followers of Jesus, as you're ready, come and receive from your King.